Hey there, welcome to the show. Our guest here on this episode, Rain Mahadi, has built his business by basically using cold email scripts that he sends out to new potential customers. So if you're looking for some cold email tips and templates that can also help you grow your business, be sure to stay around until the ending credits of this episode, as I'll give you more information on how to access these templates and videos that we put together for you guys. So thanks for tuning in and now on to this episode. I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a great supportive family. I didn't have any of those things. And all those experiences really just powered me up for what ended up happening with me. And I started this business with $75. And at that time I was naive enough and ambitious enough and inexperienced enough to go along with that wholeheartedly. And so I gave 200% to that business. I worked all day, every day. And spoiler alert, we and at the last second they escaped out of there and they were like going to the American embassy and begging them, please let my mom fly because she was like too pregnant to fly. And that idea had never dawned on me before. And it was totally a light bulb moment. I still literally remember standing in the bathroom talking to my dad, him telling me that and me going, huh, China. So my name is Rain Mahdi. I'm from San Diego, California, 37 years old, and I'm the CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging. We make custom printed flexible packaging for food, pet food, and beauty companies in the U.S. and Canada. We offer super competitive rates, outstanding quality, and amazing service. And I think if you do that in just about any industry, you'll probably do pretty damn good. How big is your company today? Today we've got about eight people. It's funny, there's something going on right now in business, which is if you're like a food company and you have a co-packer, like basically a separate facility that manufactures your food, you don't need a ton of staff in-house. Unless you're doing some sort of manufacturing, you can run a pretty sizable company with not a lot of staff. So that's kind of similar to how we are. We don't need a ton of staff to do a lot of business. How much did you do in sales last year? So last year it was just under a million, and this year we're on pace to do probably around two million. And every year, we've only been in business, this is our third full year in business, and every year so far, it looks like we're doing over 100% in growth. You're one of our first listeners to actually do an interview. You actually reached out to me about it. So do you want to tell us about how you found the podcast and why you wanted to do this actual interview? Absolutely, yeah. So as probably a lot of people who are trying to start a business, you're just desperate and thirsty for information. So I started consuming everything I could when it comes to podcasts, audiobooks. I don't really like reading books myself. That's just not the way that I comprehend. But a lot of audiobooks, you know, the classics like E-Myth and Good to Great, and just as much information as I could. And one of the things that I consumed early on was your podcast, and that really, really helped me. And I became a big fan. I really, really love just all the different stories. And I think everybody has some sort of a nugget that you can use. It may not even be something actionable. Sometimes you really just need to look out into space and see that someone else is dealing with something that you're dealing with or they've been through it and it led them to success still and show you that you're not crazy and you're on the right path. And that's very, very powerful. A lot of times in those early stages of business that could be so difficult, the most important thing is just believing that you can. And so that really helps. And so that was big for me. 
And I believe too, like even when we were talking before, because you're a Patreon member and thank you for being part of that group as well. You were just saying that you haven't got to where you want to get yet. You've only been doing it for a couple of years. And I think part of it's like, oh, I'm not doing tens of millions of sales, but I still think, you know, you're cutting yourself down as far as like, you still have a successful business and you're happy. But I think part of it is what you wanted to say is like, hey, you know, I'm not there yet. I want people to like hear my journey while I'm still on the way. And hopefully some of those people who are listening now, if you're hearing other interviews and they're doing tens of millions of dollars, hopefully your interview here can make people get to that next step that even a couple of years in, if I can talk to Rain or try to get in his brain of like where he was, that'll help motivate me. Right. Totally. I mean, here's where I'm coming from. We're a little earlier on in our journey, like you said, than some of the other amazing guests you've had on the show. You've had guys that have been and gals that have been in business 20 years plus, done 50, $100 million in sales. This is our third full year in business. And we'll probably do, like I said, close to 2 million, which to me is great because we started the business with $75 and no background in the industry. And on top of that, I quit my job before we'd even made our first dollar with basically no savings and supporting a family of five. So not a lot of room for things to go wrong, but I still took the leap and things did go wrong and I'm still here. And so I think if I can help even one person get from where I was, where we are now, then that's a win. So that's really why I want to share my stories because I think that part of the journey is a bit underserved when it comes to people sharing their stories. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And sometimes when they're telling their story and they're 20, 30 years out, they kind of forget these beginning years. So I think it's important for you to be able to like, you know, you're still in the midst of it so people can relate if they're in the midst of doing the same thing. Great point. I think a lot of times that story doesn't get told in hindsight until they're out of it. And I think me just coming out of that phase and it being so much fresher in my mind, I can share that a little bit differently. So you're right about that. So give us a little bit more in depth first, if you will, about your company, like what a packaging company does. I mean, I know you gave us a little preview, but just a little bit more so we can understand about your company before we understand how you got to where you are today. So it's funny, a lot of times when I tell people that I sell packaging, they immediately think I'm talking about like cardboard boxes or like shipping supplies or FedEx stuff. Like that's not at all what we do. We sell retail packaging to food companies, pet food companies. So if you were in the grocery store and you were buying maybe a bag of granola, it comes in this really cool looking custom printed bag and it's got a zipper at the top. So that's what a packaging company is. That's the kind of flexible packaging that we sell. So you say, for instance, like granola in a grocery store. Can you give us an example in a pet food store? Yeah, pet food. It's almost all pet food, honestly, comes in flexible packaging. So those big bags that you get dog kibble in or, you know, the little bone treats, all that kind of stuff. All of those come in some form of flexible packaging, whether it's a quad seal bag, a side gusset bag, stand up pouch, three side seal bag, flat bottom bag. Those are all different kinds of flexible packaging. It's all just basically retail packaging. So like how many clients do you have today? It's growing quickly. I honestly, I'm in that kind of like, you never count your money while you're sitting at the table kind of thing where we're just like putting them away every month. It's been amazing. We've added some really great salespeople lately. And every time I turn around, there's a new customer. So I really honestly haven't done a count on that. I'm sure it's over a hundred customers, but it could be much more than that. I'm not really sure. I haven't counted for a while. Okay. Well, that at least gives us an idea. I'm kind of the same way. I put my head down and want to keep like charging forward. And again, like you were saying, Instead of counting what you're having, you're kind of focused of like, hey, I want to still get the next client. But, you know, you give us an idea. I didn't know if it was like five, 10 or if it's closer to 100. OK, so we get a good idea of where you're at. Yeah, the thing is, this is like quality is important, really, really important. Packaging is so important to our customers. A lot of times it's the first impression that a brand makes on a customer or a buyer. A lot of times companies care more about their packaging than even the product or like as much about the packaging as the product. And so for us, focusing on quality, quality management systems, logistics, getting people their packaging on time because without their packaging, they can't start producing their product. Those things are really important focuses for us right now. And we're getting so many new customers and so much new business so quick 
quickly. I'm mainly focused on making sure that things go well there and not so much going back and like I said, counting the money or the number of customers. That's really the least important thing at this point. So do you make monies on just the packaging? Can you tell us like how in general you make money? Absolutely. Some people call what we do a broker. I don't really like using that term because it just feels a little disconnected. We really kind of manage the entire project. So a customer would come to us, they would want, you know, they're using some sort of flexible packaging. They give us their information. We're going to help them come up with the right package. We're going to get them rates. We have the best rates in the industry. It's very difficult to beat our rates because we've got this very streamlined process and we don't have a ton of COOs and CFOs and all these people that cost a whole lot of money. We've just simplified the process. We have a production facility overseas, so we produce everything overseas. So once we get all the details right, we get the pricing right, customer sends us their artwork. We work on getting the artwork developed to a proof. We get the proof back to the customer. They approve it. And then we send it into production. And then once it's done, we manage the logistics of shipping it from the factory overseas to the customer's warehouse. You know, we mark it up. We mark up a percentage of the cost of those goods for us to do that service. I didn't know if there's like different rates or if they do so many, or again, if it's like you're paying to do design and all that other stuff. So it's very simple. The one way you make money is through this packaging markup. I love simple businesses. It's a very, very simple business model. Yeah. Okay. And I like simple explanations. It makes it easier for everyone, <laughs> you know, listening and understanding. Because sometimes when you get into it, you're like, okay, you get 10 different ways of making money. But here it's very simple and we kind of understand that. I heard your interview that the t-shirt guy, and you were trying to kind of like capture the idea there. So I know what you mean. Yeah. So with this, I guess you're 38 years old today. 37. 37, about to be 38, I guess that comes next. Are you where you were? I guess when you're younger, at this point in age in your life, do you think you're at where you wanted to be? I mean, did you ever predict that you'd be here at 37? Very funny. You know, I definitely was not thinking about 37 when I was younger. I was probably barely thinking about tomorrow. One of the things that I do think about in all honesty today is I know that I could be so much further if I would have started my journey sooner. I feel that I wasted a lot of time early on just not being serious. But in reality, I'm really glad that I got a lot of stuff out of my system because now I'm able to just 110% focus and commit to what I'm doing without any distractions. My friends are going out doing stuff on the weekends or whatever. I'm not really concerned about that or like worrying about if I'm missing out on something because I did get a lot of that out of my system early. I know that I could be a lot further on than where I am right now, but I'm not bitter about it. I'm super happy about where I am. I'm very confident about where we're going in the future. I have a really clear vision about where we'll be. But when I was young, I really wasn't thinking about my future at all. Well, even at that point, I mean, if anyone's listening and feels like the way you made a used to, right? I think all of us kind of feel that way to an extent. We're all like, you know, I could have been so much further if I started earlier. But like, how did you get over that? Because I think it's important for all of us who are listening now to like appreciate the present, right? Like not where you could be, but where you are today. Because it sounds like you're okay with that. Part of you thinks you wish you could have gotten further, but now you're still, you know, happy and okay with that. I have this really, really true belief that things happen for a reason and not just for a reason, but for a good reason. I mean, people say that it's kind of cliche, but I truly own that and I feel that. And so whatever it is that I go through, I'm pretty good at distilling the lesson from it or the experience from it that's going to help propel me forward. And I don't cry over spilled milk. And that's because I know that what's supposed to happen will happen. It might just sound pie in the sky, but that's truly how I feel. So I don't waste a lot of time complaining about things that went wrong. I really just reflect and try to understand what I've done and what's happened in my life and then use that to power me for the next step. Right. I guess the only thing you'd cry over spilling is probably granola if it wasn't getting into your packaging correctly. <laughs> I don't know. I try to be Yeah, funny. well, you know, yeah, definitely <laughs> though, I try. 
For sure, man. Okay. So do you want to jump back to kind of how you got started and where you got today? Because again, we already established that, you know, when you're younger, you weren't thinking probably that forward ahead of where you are today. But do you want to jump back to when you were that age and maybe kind of how you're able to grow your business to where it is today? Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. If you ever wanted to start your own online store, there's no better time than right now. E-commerce brings in over $500 billion in sales each year, and that's expected to grow to $1 trillion in the next decade. If you have a business or product idea, you need to be selling online. But maybe you're scared of how much time it'll take to code your own website, or how expensive it would be to hire someone. Enter Volusion, the easiest and fastest all-in-one e-commerce platform, designed specifically for small businesses. You don't need any coding or design experience. Imagine opening the online store of your dreams in minutes instead of weeks. What makes Volusion stand out? Well, you can get stunning 100% free themes built from the ground up with the best in-class design and SEO. You can drag and drop your products, manage your inventory, drive traffic to your site, accept credit card payments, and easily connect with your customers. With Volusion, it's easy to get started no matter your business. Then, take your sales to the next level with hundreds of free apps and integrations, premium shipping discounts, and in-house marketing and design experts that will help you find your target audience in no time. And with no transaction fees ever, our merchants make on average 2x more than on other platforms. What I like about Volusion the best is the overall clean look of the site and themes, plus the simple integration of other popular online tools. So come see why Volusion is the number one rated e-commerce platform according to Trustpilot. Get a free 14-day no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit volusion.com forward slash millionaire and as a special for Millionaire Interview listeners, get 50% off your first month's plan with code MILLIONAIRE. This is an exclusive discount available only for our listeners. Again, get a free 14-day no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit Volusion, that's spelled out V-O-L-U-S-I-O-N.com forward slash millionaire. And as a special for our listeners, again, get 50% off your first month's plan with code MILLIONAIRE. Yeah, yeah. My story really does. If I think about how I ended up here, I really draw a straight line back to my childhood. I've got this story of rags to riches to rags to riches, and that really affected me. I'll tell the story quickly. My dad is from Little Rock, Arkansas. He's black. And my mom is from Iran. And when she was, I think, about 10 years old, her parents sent her away to a boarding school in England. And my dad comes from a very poor family in the Deep South. So he academically was able to get a scholarship to an international university, a university that had campuses all over the world. 
And my mom started going to college in England where she was living. That's kind of how they came across each other. My dad ended up going to that campus in England and that's where they met. Then they went to another campus for the same university that was in Nairobi, Kenya, so in Africa. And they got there and that's where I was conceived and I was almost born in Africa. And there's some crazy story that sounds like a Bruce Willis movie where my parents owed some money to a tribe there, like for rent or something, and they didn't have the money. And at the last second, they escaped out of there and they were like going to the American embassy and begging them, please let my mom fly because she was like too pregnant to fly. And they eventually let her go. And so they flew here to San Diego where my uncle was. My dad's brother had set up shop in San Diego. So that's why they came here. They just didn't really have anywhere else to land. And they landed here in San Diego. I was born shortly after that. And then my parents split up right after that. And like I said, my mom was new to the country. She didn't know anybody or anything. So she went on welfare. That was really the only thing she could do. And from there, she kind of pulled herself up, babysitting kids during the day while she was trying to go to school and learning and studying to become an accountant first. And then after that, she became a stockbroker. So I'm really impressed by that. And I definitely think that also rubbed off on me. My mom's ability to come here with no background, no resources and survive. And actually within a few years, be living in La Jolla, one of the richest cities in the country, probably in the world. So that's definitely part of who I am as well. Do you still keep touch with your dad or did you lose touch with him after that? No. So, you know, and I get kind of bounced between how much I really want to get into that because I don't want to make anybody look bad. But I just had a text message with my dad this morning. We talk every day. But there was a time where he and I's relationship, not relationship, but basically she had pushed him away far enough to where he realized that he was putting me through more stress and pain trying to be a part of my life than it was probably worth. So he just backed up and kind of disappeared for a few years. And that was really, really tough for me. But as soon as I turned 18, we reconnected. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's kind of understandable too. I mean, for your dad to be able to do that, obviously we're in that side of the story. I think if we jump back into, I guess your mom dealing with all this too, when you're younger, do you want to walk us through like the age ranges? Again, I don't know if we're jumping from like one year old to five year old or how old you were, where you want to jump back in here? I think I was probably around, I don't know, maybe nine, 10 years old when my mom's taking me door to door. And we're trying to basically get donations or whatever you want to call it to survive. But again, I kind of really just what I pulled from that was just the scrappiness of my mom. Like, think about the mentality to just go, okay, I'm going to get this basket. I'm going to put some chocolates in it. I'm going to wrap them with material. And I'm going to take my son door to door. And I hope that people are kind enough to give us a few bucks and then I can pay my rent. So it is what it is. And that's where you decided you wanted to start doing packaging? (laughs) No, not at all. But here was kind of the first real entrepreneurial experience that I had, I guess, aside from that, if you want to call that that. When I was in eighth grade, I was about 11. I started school early and I skipped a grade. So I was always younger than everybody. So I was 11. I was in eighth grade. Every day, my mom would take me to the donut shop on the way to school and get me a donut for a dollar. And that was our routine. It was on the way to school. So she'd stop there. They had a drive through. She'd grab me the donut and we would go on. And then she would give me a couple bucks for lunch money as well. One day we went through the drive through at this donut shop and there was a sign in the window that said a dozen day old donuts for $1. And the idea must have hit my mom. And she said, hey, how about today? Instead of getting you a donut, I'm going to get you a dozen day old donuts and you can have one and then go to school and see if you can sell the rest of them. And if you can, then there's your lunch money. I was excited about it. I didn't back down from that challenge. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so she bought the dozen donuts and she dropped me off at school. 
cool. And that first day I ate the donut and I sold all the rest of them. And within a couple of weeks, it was a line, you know, waiting for me in front of the class when I got there of people wanting to buy these donuts. And that was super exciting for me. That was the first time I felt like I'd kind of created a demand for something. And that's when the bug bit me. You know, that was definitely when I realized that more than anything else, that's when I realized that I love selling. I don't think I started having ideas about starting my own business or anything like that, but that's just when I realized that I really did like to sell. And that you weren't scared of it like so many people are. I think when you look back on it, maybe there's some kids who want to do it. So you not even being worried or phasing you, I think says something as far as your ability to run your own business. Because if you want to relate today, how do you think that kind of fits your story today? Selling just kind of propelled me into more sales activity. And I think really to answer that question more specifically, I think what it showed me was that there are opportunities out there that are just beneath the surface if you look for them. That's what it really showed me. I mean, that's really what a business is, right? As you go, hey, I think I can create a path here. I'm going to blaze a trail here that doesn't exist. And I think I can do that. And I really think that was one of those times where there was an idea. I brought it to life and it showed me that that's possible. That's really what entrepreneurship is about. I believe that's the essence of it is I have an idea. It's something that doesn't exist. I think it could happen. And to have the confidence and the belief to go forward and try it and pull it off. So really, that was the first time that happened for me. That was the first time I saw kind of a caterpillar turn into a butterfly on a small scale. Yeah. And that was eighth grade? That was eighth grade. Yeah. From there, you know, next year, obviously, I went into high school. At the same time, my mom had put me in some college classes. So freshman year, I'm 12 years old. And at night, I'm going to like community college and taking classes and acing all of that. But at the same time, those social issues and those kind of family problems I was having at home were really starting to get to me. I got to a point where I just kind of tapped out. So after 10th grade, that was it for me. I dropped out. I didn't want to go to school anymore. I just wanted to kind of get out. I moved out of my house at 16. And that was the end of my school career for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of it is like because you were so young when you're in those courses? Well, yeah, I think socially I wasn't on the same level. And that's kind of a thing too, right? Is like people want their kids to maybe skip a grade. A lot of times if your kid is smart, then they might approach you with that opportunity that, hey, you know, do you want your kid to move up a grade? For my mom, I believe it was one of those things where she wanted to be able to tell people that I was 12 years old in high school. She talked about that a lot. She was proud of it. And I don't think she thought as much about the effect and the impact on me. But socially, I was already a goofy kid. I'm still goofy. So being in this big high school with kids that had beards and were driving cars, I just was out of my league. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I could definitely see that being an issue. I mean, I read an article a couple of years ago. There's, it's actually doing the opposite in sports where there's a lot of dads who are taking middle schoolers and they can go to ninth grade, but they're making them stay back a year so they can physically develop. So when they go into high school, they're a year more physically developed to play football because you can't do that. You can't you can only play like four years of football anywhere in high school. You can't like get an extra grade if you stay back a year. But what they're actually doing is almost the exact opposite. But again, like for you, I could see that being a huge deal, especially not only are you just going to high school and you're being 12, but then you're going to these college level classes at the community college. Right. I mean, so that's a whole nother step, right? The college classes actually were pretty interesting. There you're dealing with adults, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so they were just so impressed by me. They would like call me Doogie Hauser. <laughs> They were super sweet. That was the easy part. But going to school with these kids who they're not as impressed by me or kind or mature or anything, I was just this annoying kid. I got in a lot of trouble. I was in the office every single day. The kids hated me because I was goofy and I was desperate for attention. But at the same time inside, I was dealing with all this pain and stuff at home. So it was a really weird time for me where I was just basically alienated. Like I didn't have friends at school and I had a really shitty life at home and it was pretty much just me and my dad wasn't around. 
And this was a time like I had basically at this point, I was so scared to see my dad because my mom had kind of told me I wasn't allowed to see him. And I remember that was the last time I saw him for a while. He came to school to try to have lunch with me because he couldn't come to see me and pick me up from my house. So he tried to like sneak to the school and try to take me out of class for lunch or something. And last time I saw him, he walked up to the school. He saw me from like way far away. And I remember he threw his hands up in the air like he was excited to see me. And I just ran the other direction. And I felt so horrible about that. And that was the last time that I saw him for another six years. He disappeared after that. I think he just realized at that point that, okay, this is pointless. That was all really a difficult time for me. And that's why, aside from just kind of how I was feeling emotionally and aside from not really being on the same level socially as the other kids, I've always kind of been the kind of person that if I'm not challenged by something, I'm over it. I think I had proven enough to myself that I got everything out of school that I thought I needed, that I wanted. I had already proven it. Like I did, took math 100, English 100 and screen printing and Spanish and all these other classes at college at 12 years old and I was getting straight A's. I didn't have anything else to prove and I didn't want to learn calculus. I didn't want to learn geometry. I didn't like science. All those things had no interest to me. So I really didn't see any other value in being there. I didn't have friends there. It wasn't fun. I just didn't. There was no point in me being there anymore. Yeah. But you said you didn't leave school till you're 16 because we kept emphasizing that you're 12 when you went into ninth grade there. So was there like four years of you still going to school and not liking it? No, no, no. I went to school for freshman year, which I turned 13 in freshman year, and then 13 in my sophomore year and turned 14. And then 11th grade, I went to school for the whole first semester, but I never went to class one time. Eventually, they finally figured out that I wasn't showing up and they were going to kick me out. And so I left. And so after that, I didn't do anything. I just was skateboarding and hanging out with my friends. Were these friends from high school or friends from somewhere else? So I finally had fallen in with the crew of like skaters at school. And so those were friends. Yeah. And at least you're in 11th grade too. That's way different than being in ninth grade when you're coming in. Like people automatically, you're going to find some people to hang out with. Right. And I moved to a few schools too before junior high schools. I didn't really have deep roots or anything. I left out of school at that point, And then around 16, I went and got my GED and started trying to do some community college classes. But I was really just doing that for my mom. That didn't last very long. I got the GED. I passed with flying colors. That was easy. And I did about a year of community college, but literally, to be honest, I would go to class, I would leave with this other guy that I met, we would go smoke pot and eat snacks, and that was it. That was what I was doing at the time. I was like 16. I didn't really want to be there. At this point in time, in 11th grade or so, you end up moving out of your mom's house? Yeah, so when I was 16 is when I moved out. I moved out just before I did this whole GED thing and all that. And I went to stay with a couple of friends. And so for the next like few years, I mean, we could get into it. But honestly, for the next few years, all I really did, I worked a few odd jobs, sales jobs here and there. For the most part, I was just partying. I really wasn't doing anything concrete. And that's when I say I knew I could be further along if I wouldn't have spent so much time in that phase of my life. I spent a lot of time just hanging out. So yeah, you did that first couple of years, but you could be doing that now. And I guess you've kind of gotten over that per se. Yeah. When was your next job or journey? What part of the story did we want to jump to as far as what we could learn from you and how you got to your business today? Absolutely. I'm really glad I got all that stuff out of my system because now I can just focus. And at this point, I'm so focused on business and family that my friends have just like stopped inviting me to stuff. Like I don't even get invited to like the dinners. And I see stuff on Instagram. My friends are out like there's a party or they're all at dinner. And I'm like, I can't even say anymore. Why didn't you invite me? Because they went through that and they realized I'm not showing up. So that's kind of where I am now. And I don't think I would be able to have this much laser focus in this phase of my life if I wouldn't have got that all out of my system. So that was that phase. But anyway, I got to a point where I wanted to do something a little bit more concrete. 
I did start to, I guess, just mature at a point and realize that I wanted to do something. I wanted to plant some roots. I wasn't okay with just kind of floating and hanging out anymore. I had a friend who was a graphic designer and he was kind of starting a t-shirt company. He had already had one before. He was pretty successful with it. He split from that partner and wanted to start one again. And he and I were friends. He knew that I was good at sales. He was a great designer, but couldn't do sales. And we both liked to drink. So it was kind of like a good match. And so we started this t-shirt company and we worked on that for about a year. And at that time, I was with the same girlfriend that I have now, and she supported me and my two daughters. I had two daughters by then. They were very young. At that point, I think they were like, they're a year apart. So one was a baby and the other one was like one and a half. So they were very young. And we were doing pretty well. So we were designing these shirts. They were amazing. We were selling them like in kind of, you know, hip hop and skateboarding, that kind of mix of that stuff. And we were selling into some brick and mortar stores, into some mall locations mostly throughout California, and we were starting to get a little buzz going, and that was doing really, really well. On that scale, it was doing really well. We didn't make a lot of money, and we never took any money out. One time, we took 300 bucks out for Christmas, but for the first year, it was starting to do pretty well. The partner that I had at the time, he had hit some hard times financially. He didn't have his girlfriend helping him out or anything, and I think he owed some money in taxes or whatnot, so he was starting to get kind of stressed out by all that. And one day we had this tiny little argument and this guy blows up and has a meltdown and he used that as an excuse to empty out our bank account and change the locks on the storage unit that we had that had all of our product in it. And that was it. He had a meltdown. He emptied the bank account and I haven't seen him since then. That was like my first company, I guess. That's the way that ended. I worked for a year. I didn't make any money. And then the guy took all the money and ran off. And how old were you? This was probably like 2010. So maybe, I don't know, 27 or something like that. I guess 27 to 30. Because if you're 37 today and then 2010. Yeah. And so that was probably about 15,000 bucks that we had in the account that he took off with. Not a lot of money, but for having zero, that was everything. And you hadn't paid yourself out the whole year, right? Nothing. And I guess there's this other element of it too, which is the whole time my girlfriend is supporting us and she's always been super, super supportive. She was invested too, right? Like, okay, he's working on this thing and we're going to build this thing together and whatever for that to happen. She wasn't like upset or anything. She was definitely sad for me, but I kind of felt, I guess, embarrassed in front of her as well that like this thing I've been working on and you've been sacrificing for us and it just kind of went out of the window that fast. The whole thing was on a handshake, him and I. There wasn't really anything I could do about it. Yeah. And you said you had two kids at the time? Yeah, I had my two daughters. One of them was probably one and a half and the other one was six months. I know I kind of breezed over like having those kids, but I don't know. I guess it becomes relevant later, but yeah. So I had those two kids. Okay. I guess if it becomes relevant later, we'll talk about that later. So yeah, why don't you talk to the next part of the story? So this is, I guess, where things kind of got even closer to what I'm doing now. So that was a huge disappointment, but this was the good thing is at that point, I had gotten fixated on the fact that I was going to start something. That was the good thing that came from that is I learned about printing and stuff. And that also relates to what I'm doing now, which that was good. But I got the idea. I got the bug that I was going to start something. So it didn't stop when that business went away. And I had somehow come across these like watch phones. I don't know where I saw them. I don't know if I saw them on the internet or what, but I was interested in these like chunky, they look like a, you know what a G-Shock watch is? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So I had seen these watch phones somewhere and I decided that I wanted to try to find these things and sell them. I talked to my dad. I was on the phone with my dad one day and I'm telling him that I'm looking for these watch phones and does he have any ideas? And he said he had a partner who did business in China. I think he had imported a lot of like these Razor scooter kind of things. And he goes, hey, you should look in China. And that idea had never dawned on me before. And it was totally a light bulb moment. I still literally remember standing in the bathroom talking to my dad, him telling me that and me going, huh, China. 
and not just because of these watch phones, but just I knew everybody knows that China manufactures all this stuff. And that just smelled like opportunity to me. I didn't know exactly how or what, but I just liked that idea. And so immediately I went online and I start looking for a website where I might be able to find these watch phones. And I found them pretty quickly. I found this website called DHgate that sells a bunch of different products. They're still around now. And they had these watch phones and I saw them there and I start talking to some of the suppliers. What I ended up kind of figuring out was that I was worried about the compatibility of these watch phones in America. Like even though I found them and they look cool and the prices seemed okay, I was worried that once I got them here, they may not be compatible with the different servers like our service providers, you know, like AT&T, Verizon or whoever. So I decided that that might not be the right one. But what I did see was a whole bunch of other products that I thought I could sell. I saw stuff like electronics, like these solar powered phone chargers and exercise equipment and some off-brand kind of watches and home goods. I saw all this different stuff there and that really excited me. So instead of selling these watch phones, I got the idea that basically I was going to start a drop shipping website. I'd never heard of a drop shipping website, but that's really what it was. I thought, okay, well, I can get these products. I can put them on a website. I can sell them. When somebody pays me, I can take the money that I get. I can purchase it from the supplier in China. I can have them ship it directly to the customer and I'll take my money off the top. Drop shipping 101, right? That's what I thought to do. And so that's what I did. I went on Craigslist and I found somebody to make me a website for like a hundred bucks or something, pretty cheap. And they put the website together for me. I just asked them to make it something where I'd be able to update it with products and stuff on my own. And so they showed me how to do that. And I spent the next few weeks just going back and forth with different suppliers on this website. So DHgate's a website that has a bunch of different suppliers on it that are all selling their stuff at like retail slash small wholesale. For one product, there may be 50 different suppliers. So I'm going there and I'm just kind of like, okay, I wanna sell this product. Now I search it and I find all the different people selling it and I'm negotiating with them in the messages and trying to find the person that has the best quality and the best price and the best communication. That's a lot of what it took to do what I'm doing right now. That was really where I learned how to start working with China was in those few weeks that I was finding my suppliers for this dropshipping website. Yeah. And I'm on the website too. Yeah. You can see where you can buy individually at dhgate.com. That's what you're using. Yeah. Not a plug for them because it's a really crappy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Same thing with like Alibaba. People have heard of Alibaba. So it's the same exact thing, right? Basically. Yeah. Like Alibaba has a retail side called AliExpress or something like that. So it's pretty similar to that. There are suppliers that are willing to sell on small scale. They're probably capable of doing wholesale, larger wholesale runs as well, but they'll sell you one piece of something. So that's exactly it. Yeah, but I mean, I like hearing these actual websites because sometimes people just speak in general. Then I'm like, at least we can go back and see, get an idea of like what you were using back then. Not that you're saying that it's the greatest now or it was the greatest then, but it gets an idea that you're not like just making it up, obviously. Absolutely not. No, no, no. I spent days and weeks going back and forth with those people. And the conversations that I had with then are very similar to some of the conversations I've had in the early stages of this business because Chinese have a specific business culture and a specific way of communicating. And obviously no two people are the same, but there are definitely similarities between the way that they deal, all of them, the way they deal with, you know, uh, U.S. buyers. And so learning how to have that navigate that conversation then served me very well later on. Well, yeah, give us some examples of like how you thought it might have been and then how it actually is when you're dealing with buying things from China and you have zero experience doing that. Because again, I can imagine some people listening now who want to do that. And then they're like, well, I don't have any experience. Well, obviously you didn't have experience at one point doing this. So yeah, just give us some examples of how things were different, how you thought they would actually be. 
Right, so a lot of it honestly was trial and error. I'm a pretty intuitive person and I've studied a lot of human behavior in my life just because I've been around a lot of different kinds of people. I can do a pretty good job of reading between the lines. But when it comes to dealing with Chinese people, they're very black and white, very matter of fact. If they haven't said something, you shouldn't assume it. You just need to really clarify every point. And the trial and error part was me not realizing how much that's true to that extent. Maybe I'd buy something and not realize that it wasn't this, but it was that. I can't really think of a specific instance in mind, but tons of instances, I'm sure, of just assuming things. You should just never assume things when you deal with them. Other than that, though, my experience dealing with them is they've been, for the most part, pretty professional and straightforward. But the one thing that I definitely should add is that there are a ton of scam artists out there in the international market in general, but China is no exception to that, right? Is there are plenty of people who are, their entire business is basically just to create a perception and you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. They may put a picture up of a product that you think you're getting this product, but they've actually made some poor quality version of that product. They've put up a picture of a high quality product and you get it and it's the same product but it pales in comparison were those from like different websites or was that even from like the dhgate website that you're talking about earlier that applies to dhgate that applies to alibaba or any of those other chinese international sourcing websites is you have to be very very careful about what you're seeing and what you're actually getting in relation to alibaba in particular the biggest thing there is a lot of times you don't even know who you're dealing with you think you're dealing with a manufacturer and you're actually dealing with what's called a trading company somebody who's essentially a middleman and you're going to send them a quote request. They're going to send that out to some other factory that you're not aware of who they are. You have no idea who you're dealing with. And because there's that disconnect, issues and mistakes and problems and quality issues and so many things can go wrong. I'll get to it in much more detail later. But the first person that I dealt with for large wholesale orders in China was a trading company. And I didn't realize that. And this guy would sell me anything I would ask him for a quote for. And he had very little knowledge, product knowledge, about the things that he was selling. And that turned out to be a really big problem. So, yeah, any suggestions? I know you said you'd get it to it later, but I know we're getting closer to the end of the interview. So I don't know if it makes sense to talk about now or like any suggestions to counteract that. Is it like ordering small quantities, only ordering from people you've heard of, even if it's worth paying extra? Like, just tell us about that. Right. So the only thing that you can do is be really careful, be specific about the information that you're requesting. You have to confirm everything. You have to inspect everything. You have to get samples of stuff. In all reality, until you go over there and visit the facility and the people that you're dealing with, you really don't know what you're getting. What year is this that we're in the story? And again, keep everything straight. Is this all still you trying to sell these watches? So I thought about selling the watches and then I moved on into this drop shipping website. And so I set up this website and it was actually doing pretty well. I mean, I was going from making no money to now I'm starting to get a few sales. I set everything up. I had all the products in there. And Danny and I, who's a partner of mine, we went out and started putting flyers on people's doors. And I had some banner ads up on a few websites. And next thing you know, I was using PayPal as my shopping cart. And I just started getting these PayPal notifications that a product was sold and this product was sold and that product was sold maybe three, four or five times a day, which again, not a lot, but to go from zero to creating that kind of an income, it was like, that was a nice moment. And just seeing that it was starting to barely kind of take flight a little bit. So that was really exciting. And these were just the products on that one website that you had developed off Craigslist? Off of DHgate, yeah. Okay, so I, the flyers and stuff that you're putting out, are these just to your website? You're like, hey, come check out this website for these good deals? 
Exactly. Some of the most exciting products that I thought I had that people would be interested in and the website on there and come check out for these good deals. Exactly. And we were selling stuff a little bit cheaper. I thought a lot cheaper. And so that was cool. And for being as rudimentary as our marketing and advertising strategy was, surprisingly, we did get people to show up to the website and place orders. What was the website called? It was called usmcoutletmall.com. Because we were obviously like I grew up in a military household, so I knew that military community pretty well. And I felt like that was something where we could go out and I knew that community. So we went on base and we passed out flyers on base and there were websites that we knew we could go to. So we just kind of created a community around that. Okay, usmcoutlet.com? usmcoutletmall.com, yeah. Outlet Mall. Okay, cool. Is it still up today? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I was checking it out. We can go back and look at an archive. So like, how many products would you have you know, on there at a time? I don't know. I mean, it was really loading the products in there was mostly like a one-time thing. I mean, I think I added a couple more after we launched the thing. But I think I threw like a hundred products in there or something more than that right at the beginning to launch it. But at least in the beginning, you said you understood the military aspect of it. So even though you were saying it seems rudimentary, you did have at least some type of like idea between a brand and a business. It's not you're just going to everyone in your apartment and had, you know, no. Rainmaker deals or something. <laughs> com. Right. We definitely went after some sort of a niche. I kind of at least had that much. I mean, I've always had a really instinctive understanding of marketing, advertising, sales. And so I knew that like, okay, unless there's something unique about this, what's the point? So that was kind of what we went after. But what ended up happening with that website was over some time, we were having normal kind of customer service issues. And I really didn't understand how to deal with that stuff. And I thought they were kind of dead end problems for that site, especially with drop shipping stuff from China. You can only imagine the shipping times were insane. So somebody would order something and two and a half weeks, it still hadn't showed up. And these customer issues just started kind of piling in or somebody would get a product and it was, you know, it would break after they used it a couple of times and they were upset about it. And those things kind of piled up on me to really to the point where I thought this isn't a good thing anymore. I kind of said, okay, I got to kind of take this thing out behind the barn. So I took all the customers that had kind of open complaint issues with us at the time or with me at the time, and I refunded all of them their money. And I shut the thing down. I was just like, it's not good. In hindsight, any business that I've had that I've set down, in hindsight, I can look back and see how I could have come at that a different way and continued forward. And I think in any business, you're going to reach those points where things look like they're not working out. That's where you have to continue forward. And that was one of the major things that I had to shift in my brain before I could get something to really work out. And so what year did you end up shutting down this website and then kind of getting into what you are today? Right. So my timelines are pretty weird, but I don't know, maybe 2011 or 2012, somewhere around there. So around this time, my older daughter was going into kindergarten. She had been going back and forth, kind of like between me and her mom, kind of like every other week type of deal, which was fine when she was in preschool. But when she went to kindergarten, then she needed to be in one place full time. And her mom lived about an hour away. So we got into this situation where we couldn't agree on who was going to keep her for her to go to school. And we ended up going to court. Make a long story short on that, there was a recommendation to clearly, uh, you know, have the kids stay with me. But when we actually went into court, I don't know what happened, but I had lost custody of my daughters, at least, you know, the full custody. It went to the mom, which who I love to death. I'm not trying to paint any weird picture, but that's what happened at that time. That was devastating for me. I remember walking out of that courtroom and crying and I cried all the way home. That was one of the most difficult things that I've ever dealt with in my life. And I couldn't understand why and what. But the one thing that I landed on was the only way that happened is because I didn't have a lawyer and I couldn't afford a lawyer. Obviously, at that time, I didn't have any money. I thought to myself then, if the only way that I'm going to get my kids back 
is to get a lawyer, then no more messing around with these little businesses and trying to do this and that. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to work my ass off and I'm going to get my kids back. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, forget trying to start a business. I'm getting a job. And one of these companies that I used to work for when I was doing this little piece work here and there and kind of just floating around was a home staging company. You know what home staging is? Yeah, for like selling actual houses when you're coming in there and making them look nicer. Is that what you're talking about? Right, right. You used to do real estate. So I figured, you know, but for everybody else, obviously, home staging is where somebody's trying to sell a house. You want to make it look nice. So they bring in the furniture and they basically do like an interior decorating job on the house. And so there was this company that I worked for from time to time when I needed to make some money. So I called them up. They were always happy for me to come back. And I showed up. And this time it was different. I wasn't just there for a couple of weeks. I was there to really dig in. And I worked seven days a week. I worked long shifts, sometimes 30-hour shifts. So I showed up to dig in. I worked long shifts. I'd worked seven days a week. Some of the shifts were 30 hours, literally nonstop with like no break. And when the lady who owned this business realized that I was really there, she started piling things on. She had been running that business for years by herself. She was burnt out and needed a break too. So before you know it, I was doing the hiring. I was doing the firing. I was doing the sales. I was doing the purchasing of like the furniture and all this stuff. I was managing the crews. I was doing everything. And she didn't show up to work for three months. And she actually told me she had vertigo for three months. You know what vertigo is? Yeah, but can you explain? Where you're like dizzy, like if you stand up, you're dizzy. <laughs> so she told me she had vertigo for three months, which she was totally making that up. Like I said, she was gassed. She needed a break. So that was fine. And that was a good experience for me to really learn how to kind of operate a business that way. That's something I really needed because I hadn't done a lot. I hadn't worked a lot of jobs. Or I hadn't worked for a long time anywhere, really. And so every payday, our paychecks were short. And that got old. I mean, it became this thing where we would just stand around, open up our paychecks together, and everybody one at a time would just go, oh, man, what is this? And so that just got really, really old. At that same time, my girlfriend's dad was working for this juice company. They were hiring for like 18 bucks an hour. And that sounded great to me. It sounded like that company was growing and something about that really interested me. So I started working with them. I just started badgering her dad to get me the job over there. He eventually got me the job over there. And within my third shift, they had moved me up. I was working my tail off like I was doing at the staging company. And a couple months later, they brought me in full time. They wanted me to help manage the kitchen. And they also wanted me to start a sales department. So at this business, this is where I learned, I'd say 65, 75% of what I know about business was at this job. They kind of did the same thing that the staging company lady did, where they just piled it on me. Once I got there, I was doing everything. I was waking up at 4 a.m. to go open up the kitchen, help make the product all day, manage those guys. Then I would go home and I would be working the sales leads from my cell phone. And then we got an office and blah, blah, blah. And we took that business from about 1 million a year over three years up to about 12 million a year. And this guy sat me down in the very beginning. And he told me that if I stuck with them, that he would give me equity in the company. And he said, once we get to 500,000 a month in revenue, I'm going to give you 3% revenue. It was me and it was two other people that he was splitting three ways, 10%. And he told me that this equity would be worth about $5 million. And at that time, I was naive enough and ambitious enough and inexperienced enough to go along with that wholeheartedly without any doubts, no contract, just on a handshake. And I was all in. And so I gave 200% to that business. I worked all day, every day. Could not have worked harder if it was my own business. And spoiler alert, we did end up hitting that number. And I did not get the equity 
that he promised me. It was kind of a dangling a carrot kind of thing. So that was disappointing. But in the time that I worked there, I gained, like I said, priceless experience. I wouldn't trade 100% of that company now for that experience I got. I did the hiring. I did the firing. I built an entire sales department from the ground up. I wrote scripts. I wrote cold emails that did really, really well. I hired the reps. I hired the customer service guys. I rented out the office, hired the kitchen staff, kitchen managers. I even became a kitchen manager, which is really weird. I got the company certified organic. I did everything you can think of. I started this social affiliate program that started grossing like 30000 a month in revenue. I did everything. And this is completely leads into where I am now. So one of the things that I was in charge of was the purchasing. They used all these different packaging products like shaker cups to mix your protein in and these reusable cooler bags and these little craft paper pouches that they would repackage single servings of protein powder in. And I started to notice because I was doing all the purchasing that all this stuff that we were buying was just being bought from distributors who were importing it from China. The little light bulb went off there. I just realized all they were doing was marking it up. I was like, okay, well, I know how to buy stuff in China, and I bet we can save a ton of money if we just went to the factories and bought it direct. I started looking into it. I started doing some research, and within a couple of months, we had placed our first order overseas, and it went well. The stuff showed up. I'll never forget. We were all waiting out by the warehouse the day that first truckload showed up, and we opened up the boxes, and everything looked great. We were saving so much money. It was insane. Within the first year, we had saved about a quarter of a million dollars just from shifting to buying direct overseas. And so you were in charge of that with sell at the juice company? Exactly. That was my thing. And so that's where I really realized, like, wait a minute. So here's the thing. This is where the business came from, right? Is that he didn't give me a bonus for that. He barely even kind of said thank you. The guy was kind of a weird guy, <laughs> unappreciative guy. I think all of us can relate to that where we've had a boss like that, right? The guy was difficult, man. He was a really condescending, difficult person to deal with. But yeah, exactly, right? The guy didn't even shake my hand for it, didn't take me to dinner, no bonus. You would think you saved somebody 250,000 bucks. They'll at least, hey man, here's 10, 15, 20,000 bucks, bonus, something, nothing. So because of that, I didn't get mad. I just sat and I thought to myself, hmm, well, if I can save this small business a quarter of a million dollars in a year, I'm sure I can find some other businesses out there that I can save them some money and I could make some money on that. So that became the embryo of the idea. And that's where the idea was born for Hawk Packaging. And in the beginning, we called it Hawk Sourcing. So I started getting a website together. Well, once I, after that, I mean, you said you didn't get mad, but pretty soon afterwards, were you like, screw this, I'm going to go start my own company and you left? Or did you start thinking, I know, obviously it sounded like you started thinking about Hawk Packaging before you left, but just tell us about like when you decided to leave and all that. Again, I think a lot of us can relate to that, being upset that, hey, if you're working for a company, you're busting your butt, you don't even get any recognition or monetarily incentive, even though you thought you would have like, yeah, just walk us through that a little bit more. Right. So I started building the business while I was still working there. Mm -hmm. Okay. I remember him and I went outside for a talk. We had hit that magic number. He said, when you get to $500,000 a month in sales, that's where I'm going to give you guys this equity. And we hit that number. And I was always kind of the leader of the pack there when it came to everybody else. I worked just under him and everybody kind of followed my cue a bit. So nobody else was going to speak up to him. But I did have the talk with him. And I took him outside and I said, look, man, I came on here to be an assistant kitchen manager and start a sales department. I've done everything here. And not just kind of in this like, you know, every person thinks that they're the most important. I really did a lot at that business. There were months that he went on vacation and I ran the whole thing. And I said, look, if I haven't proven myself now and we hit this number, if it's not good enough now for you to write this contract, it's just not going to happen. And he wiggled out of it. And I could see in that moment it wasn't going to happen. So from that point, I said, okay, 
I'm going to go do my thing in my own mind. Never told him that, but I just said in my own mind, okay, it's time to do my own thing. So I started setting up this website in my off time. I just built it on Wix. I just got a Wix website and I started putting it together. And I had this idea that we were going to sell any kind of packaging or anything that we could get in China. It wasn't just flexible packaging like we're doing now. We were ready to source whatever products we could sell, essentially. I think when you start, you cast a big wide net and just try to get a paycheck. So we were just going to test it out and see what happened. So I start building this site. When I got it up, I started writing these cold emails and I started sending out these cold emails. I would find companies on like lists of trade shows and stuff and I would reach out to them and I would email them through their website or I would find their email on Google and I would send this cold email out to them and say, hey, we can save you money on this. We can save you money on that. And eventually people started responding back. I brought in my guy, Danny, again, who pretty much does everything with me. The same guy who was helping me pass out flyers for USMC Outlet Mall. And I brought him in and I said, hey, listen, this is the idea. And I sat him down. I remember we went to this place called Luna Grill. And I had this real early idea about the business model. And I said, look, we're going to sell packaging. People need to reorder their packaging. If we get five customers in month one, five customers in month two, five customers in month three, I think by month four, the customers from month one are going to be ready to reorder. So we'll get five customers in month four, but then we'll get reorders from the guys in month one. And then that'll continue to just build and build and kind of compound. And I showed him that with French fries on a plate. I put the French fries on a plate. This was one, two, three. And then in month four, there were two French fries. He looked up and he said, I'm in. And I said, okay, cool. He wasn't doing anything at the time. So he was in. And so I would go to work. I got a cell phone, a flip phone, just the free phone they had. And I put it in my pocket on vibrate. And he would work from home. He didn't even have a computer. He worked from his cell phone. And he would send out those emails to the prospects from his cell phone all day long. And we would get emails back. And sometimes the phone would ring. I set up a 1-800 number that just went to that cell phone. And the phone would ring in my pocket. I would get up out of my office, I would run around the building and pick up the phone and answer Hawk Sourcing before the phone stopped ringing. That was how we kind of fielded those first calls and emails. And for the next few months, this was my schedule. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd work on it before work, I would go to work, I'd try to sneak in as much as I could during work. I still did whatever I needed to do, but I didn't feel that loyalty anymore because the guy basically robbed me. So I was trying to get my thing off the ground. So I'd work on it as much as I could, I'd go home for lunch. I'd bring my laptop with me. I'd work on it all lunch. I wouldn't eat anything. I'd go back to the office. I'd finish what I had to do with the job, work on it again whenever I could. And then I'd leave the office as soon as I could, go back home. I'd sit in my couch and I would work. I would work, I'd work. And then finally around 7.30, I would stop and I'd get some food. That was the first time I ate in the day. I would come and sit back down and I would work and work and work until about one o'clock in the morning when I finally couldn't keep my eyes open and I'd fall asleep at the computer. Then like clockwork, every night I'd wake up again about 15 minutes later and I'd work for another hour before I finally said, okay, that's it. I'd close the computer, I'd go back to sleep. I did that for months, not a couple of days. I did that for months. So that was really how I made the transition. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby, the live virtual receptionist and 24 seven live chat service dedicated to helping small business owners like you grow their businesses. From answering and transferring calls to taking messages and answering FAQs, booking appointments and capturing leads and intake information, Ruby's got your back. Their friendly professional receptionist and chat specialist act as an extension of your team, giving the appearance of being in your office. They create great first impressions for the first time customers and help you build loyalty and repeat business with high touch, personalized service based on your instructions. 
Learn why more than 10,000 business owners choose Ruby. Try Ruby risk-free with their 21-day money-back guarantee. Just call 866-611-7829 today or visit callruby.com forward slash millionaire to get started. And if you're looking for more information about Ruby Receptionist, be sure to tune in to episode 147, where I interview the founder, Jill Nelson. Yeah, I mean, did it rejuvenate you kind of? I mean, obviously, again, you said you really weren't mad. I think a lot of people still would be pissed if like you said you had this agreement with the owner, you're still working there, even though he still ripped you off, basically saying he was going to do this stuff and didn't. But like starting your own company here and seeing, I guess, things start off successfully. Were you working so hard because you're seeing these things actually work out for you? Like what was driving you then? Because originally you even said when you went back to get that job, it was to see your daughters was the main thing. But then maybe you weren't getting rewarded financially like you thought you would and maybe again you starting hawk packaging at the time like what was motivating you to work this hard and do these two jobs i'll tell you at my core i'm entrepreneurial i cannot work for anybody else even in those times where i was just bouncing around doing jobs here and there they were all two months three months i have to be doing my own thing i am truly truly that and so i at some point it was going to have to happen i was somehow able to work at that juice company for a couple years even though that guy was so condescending and talked to me like i was an idiot half the time and i did so much for them I was somehow able to turn off that switch that would normally that would repulse me, but I was able to stay there long enough because I needed that, not his treatment, but I needed that experience. And I wasn't thinking that consciously, but subconsciously I was absorbing everything and knew that I could never really do something for myself until I learned what I was learning there. And once I got to the point where I felt I had what I needed, all of a sudden it was like the carriage turned back into a pumpkin and I was like, what am I doing here? And I can tell you this. There was a day I started to get so fed up with his treatment and I also started to get very close to feeling like this thing was going to work out. Still hadn't made a dollar yet, but there were some leads that I felt like were warming up pretty well for us. And I'll never forget, I was in the shower one morning getting ready for work and I got out of the shower and I just broke down crying. I just could not drag myself to that office one more day and deal with that guy's treatment and his fake smile and just, it was just so, you know what I mean? Oh, I know. Yeah. I don't like fake people either. Yeah. If you're saying you have to deal with the fake smile and all that. Yeah, I got you. Dude, it was getting so brutal. It was so brutal. It had gotten to the point where him and I both knew weren't keeping up the fake smile thing. We knew we didn't like each other. At that point, it was inevitable what was going to happen. And it all came to a head. He brought this guy in to try to do some sales training with us, which really it wasn't about doing any sales training. He was just trying to mess with me. The guy was there for one day. I left that day and I sent him a text and I said, hey, I think I'm going to take my sick week. I had never taken a day off, not one. And I said, hey, I'm going to take my week off for my sick time. And this sales guy was supposed to be there for a week. So it was an obvious like, hey, I'm not doing this. And he called me. He just responded back with a text. Okay. And I knew he was pissed. The next day, I was super excited because I'm like, okay, I'm taking a week off. We're going to get to really give this thing a test run. So Danny showed up at my house the next morning, like bright and early. We were ready to get going. By then he had a computer. It wasn't on his cell phone. So we were ready to get going. Yeah. And again, you're talking about Hawk packaging now. Even though you're taking a sick week off, you're still pumped because you're like, hey, you had some more stuff going on and you're just going to focus on Hawk packaging this week. For about six months, I had been working on Hawk packaging before work, during lunch, after work, and this was going to be my first opportunity to really get going from morning until night with no distractions. So we were both super excited, Danny and I. So that's what we did. First thing in the morning, the next morning, he showed up at my house and we planted our butts on my couch 
and we got to it. And I'd say about 11 o'clock, I got a text from the owner of the juice company. And he's like, hey, can we talk? And I knew exactly what he wanted. I had basically been trying to get fired because I wanted to just get off and get unemployment. I had never been on unemployment before, but I was trying to get out of there. I didn't have any savings. I didn't have any money. So I thought, okay, the best thing I can do is get out of here, get on unemployment, and then just bust my butt to try to make this thing happen. So I was kind of trying to get fired, but not doing anything like immoral, but I just wasn't giving it the Boy Scout try. So he goes, hey, can you call me? We get on the phone and he starts going into this kind of orchestrated speech. He was that way. Everything was always so like premeditated. And so he's like rattling off this speech to me and I'm just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's perfect. That's fine. Let's part ways. And he goes, really? Okay, great. He thought I was going to take it harder. And he goes, when can you come in? I said, right now. The place is just down the street from my house. And he said, okay. So I jumped in the car right away. High five, Danny. We were laughing. I get in the car. I drive down there. He gives me my last check and he gave me one check severance pay. So one more month, just based on like my average bonus and that kind of stuff, sales like commission. And that was it. And he laid me off. And he did that because I had just gotten employee of the month like two months ago. So he really didn't have any cause for firing me. He was trying to protect himself. But lo and behold, that ended up being a great thing for me because I didn't know if you get fired in California, at least you can't get unemployment. You have to get laid off. So that ended up being a blessing for me. So I went home, I had my one month check, I had my next month severance pay, and I got on unemployment right away, which is like, I don't know, 1500 bucks a month or something, which is nothing. I had $5,000 a month worth of bills. I had my kids, by the way, I didn't get to that part of the story, but my daughters had come back to me. They were only gone for a year and then they came back. So my daughters were living with me. By this time now, I also have a son. And I've got $5,000 a month in bills and I have no savings. So I've got this about fourteen, fifteen thousand $15,000 that I got from these two checks. And I figured that, and then with unemployment, I figured I had a three, four month runway. And that was it. We hit the ground running. We worked morning to night. And the funny thing about this whole thing is I thought I was creating the easiest job on the planet with this company. I thought, you know, I'm going to find people who need packaging. They need to save their money on packaging. I'm going to source that packaging. We're going to sell it to them. I'm going to take my money off the top, almost like a drop shipping, same kind of thing. And it's going to be super easy. But what I didn't realize was that we'd be dealing with clients in the US all day during the day, China being on the other side of the clock. I'd be up all night dealing with China. I created a 24 hour a day job for myself, which was insane and very, very stressful. But I'll say this, I quit the job, had not made a dollar yet with Hawk. I'll never forget this day as long as I live. I'm laying in my bed one morning, about two weeks later, just about two weeks after I quit my job, FedEx comes to the door. My girlfriend was already up walking around doing stuff or whatever. I'm still sitting in bed. She went to the door, got the envelope, came back up, handed it to me. I opened it. It was a check for about $14,000, $14,500 or something like that. And that was a 50% deposit on our first order. And we made about ten grand on that order. And that was one of the proudest moments of my entire life. I took a huge leap of faith leaving that job with really no safety net at all. And it worked out. That check mean that we were off and running. We were in the races. And so that was a big moment. I still have that envelope, actually. It's in my closet, and I look at it pretty much every day. And so how long did it take to get that first check? So it was about six and a half months, maybe since we launched the website, but it was about two weeks after I quit my job. Yeah. So even two weeks afterwards. Yeah. That's what I was making sure. So at least, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like you had to wait another six months after you quit your job or else there would have been an issue. It sounds like, right? Well, we wouldn't have made it. So here's one of the things that really helped me around that time. Cause you know, making that leap of faith can be really, really difficult. Like I mentioned before, I haven't read a ton of books, but a few audio books and one that kind of everybody's gotten their hands on is four hour work week. And I think everybody kind of has that same, most of the people I talk to have the same idea or same opinion about four hour work week that some of the ideas are, you know, if you want to work on the beach in Thailand from your laptop, then that's cool, but it's not practical for everybody. 
But there was this one part of that book that really, really helped me. He talks about quantifying your fears. He talks about really thinking about what's the worst thing that can happen. Otherwise, in our minds, a fear can be as bad as death if we haven't really thought about what we have to fear. But when you quantify what could go wrong, it really helps you to put that in perspective and maybe not be so worried about it. Embarking on this journey, I had realized that the worst thing that could happen is we run out of money, we have to move out of our place, which we were renting, we weren't purchasing, so it's not like I was going to get foreclosed on. We would have to move out of our place, maybe go live with my girlfriend's parents for a while until maybe I got a job or something else, which I could, I'm sure I could have got a job within a couple of months and gotten back on our feet. The kids would have to move out of their school and go to a different school. That was the worst of it, though. I mean, even though none of that would be fun, none of that was life or death. I really didn't have a lot to fear by failing. I didn't have anything, so there wasn't much to lose. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important, again, for anyone who's scared about starting their business now who's listening, because I feel like that's a good amount of people, because we all started from at some point from not having a business, right? So there's plenty of people listening right now. And again, that's why we wanted to tell your story is that you're still in the beginning stages of doing it, and you still remember that clear as day, it sounds like the worst thing that could happen. So anyone who's listening now who hasn't started a business, just think about how much more favorable things they might have than you did when you started yours, where maybe they have six months of expenses in their bank account or a year or whatever, you know? And so they got even a head start on you if they wanted to start theirs at the same age. So I think, again, the key word is perspective. And I think anyone who's listening just to have that, and again, why we wanted to tell your story a couple of years here into hog packaging. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a great supportive family. I didn't have any of those things. And all those experiences really just powered me up for what ended up happening with me. And I started this business with $75. I say that it was just the cost of the Wix website for a year. That was really the only money that we spent was that. And from then it was just cold emails. And to this day, we've never done a digital ad. We've never gone to a trade show. I'm really, really good at doing cold emails. And so we have a team that sends those out and our response rate is 25%, which is insane compared to anything anybody else is probably doing. It's usually pretty shocking to people who are kind of familiar with that. And so we typically have more leads than we ever need. But if you have an idea, if you believe in it, and if you go for it, then it is possible. But the biggest thing for me, like I said, too, was just knowing not to stop. With USMC Outlet Mall, I started having all those issues with the products, and I stopped. Uh, with the t-shirt company, I could have kept that thing going. There's a couple other things I really didn't get to. But I mean, every business that I've ever had, I felt like was a good enough idea. And I just got to a difficult part and I stopped. And I think that's where you really have to turn on the jets and go further and go harder. Does everyone still go to your apartment today no. to work from your couch or how's that no. work out? So that's actually pretty funny. So we worked from my couch for a while. How long is a while? I don't know, maybe six, eight months. But it got to a point where it wasn't fair to us. It wasn't fair to my family because I can't deal with distractions. I need quiet. And, you know, my girlfriend would be trying to do laundry in the morning and I'd be like, why is the laundry? You know, like, so <laughs> it didn't fit. So we started looking for a place and we didn't really have any money, but we were looking for a place. Danny had a friend who had a race car garage. They made like movie cars for like Fast and Furious and stuff like that. And it was just around the corner from my place. So they had a big like loft kind of office space room, whatever upstairs that they weren't using. And they were willing to rent it to us for $500 a month. So we took that spot. And I remember just being really nervous about whether or not we were going to be able to cover 500 bucks a month. It seemed like another big leap of faith, but I just said, Hey, let's do it. So I paid them first and last month rent. And we went in there and it was definitely working in a garage. I mean, there were times where the phone would ring and at the same time they would start up one of these muscle cars and you would just hear, <laughs> and it was like, 
Or sometimes they'd start up an old truck they were working on. It would just fill the whole place with black smoke and we'd be in there coughing. So it was definitely odd, but it was enough. You know, we had desks and we felt like we were really at a place of business. And so that was a great stepping stone for us. And we were there for maybe a year. And then we moved to where we are now, which is really nice office in Vista. And so this is, it makes you appreciate it. Walking that journey and ending up here where I can look out and I can see our logo real big on the wall and it's really nice looking. And we've got all the snacks and tables and like, you know, now it's, I don't think I could possibly have appreciated it as much if I hadn't taken the path that I took to get here. Again, the keyword, I think, perspective. So anyone who's in working from home or doing those other things, right? It's like, just appreciate that opportunity because then when you get to a nicer place or whatever, you can remember where you were at one point in time. So are you still 50-50 partner? I don't know if we talked about that with your other partner because we didn't really talk. I guess he helped you with the website once upon a time. What's the deal with that? I built the website myself. He helped me with like sending leads out. And then this is funny too. So I gave him 25% and I have 75% and it's still kind of that way. To this day, we have this idea that we want every employee to be an owner. I'm not greedy, dude. Like if I took 10% of my equity and spread that out across our employees or even 20%, I just wouldn't care. I'm just not like that. I don't know. Maybe that's weird of me. Like this guy at the juice company was giving me 3% and I went and broke my back for that company. And still after hitting the target, he wouldn't give me 3%. 3% like of a small business for somebody who helped you build it. I just don't get it. I don't know. I'm just not that, I don't want to say money hungry. I'm not money hungry, but I'm just not that fixated on that kind of stuff. So I think that's going to be in the future for us is making every employee an owner to some extent. Yeah. And hopefully that experience again with your old boss is like made you realize like if you're actually going to do that and say you're going to do it, that you actually end up doing it. And also, I mean, we even talked about before, it's like, what part of the journey do you think you're in now? As far as like where you see your perspective of when you get five, 10, 15 years from now for hot packaging, because even though you're saying you don't mind giving this up and stuff, I know you have big ambitions still. Like even though you're saying, hey, you want to get percentage certain people doesn't mean you're stopping your business growth right now. So just tell us about that, where you want to go. And then we can check in at some point down the road to see if you got there. Oh, that be great. Yeah. Like I said too before, I have a really, really clear vision of where we are and where we're going. And of course, there's always the unforeseen, right? You don't know what you don't know. That's for anybody. But like I said, you know, we're experiencing major growth right now. Right now at the moment, my main focus is to make sure that we serve our customers well as we're growing. I don't want to be, it's this thing that I've heard about other people rings in my head all the time is that, oh, you know, as they started growing, their service really fell off. I don't want that to be our story. So I'm majorly fixated on making sure that our customers get the same kind of hands-on service that they were getting before. And the truth of the matter is they're getting better service because there was a time where I wore many hats and other people wore multiple hats. You know, I had a guy who was a lead generator and he was working logistics and blah, blah, blah. But as we grow and we get more people specializing and these people have experience and they're better than I was figuring things out or somebody else might have been, it's only enhanced and it's only gotten better. Where we are right now is at a stage where we've got a lot of the groundwork figured out. We've got a great relationship with our production facility overseas. We do regular visits and audits, and it's a very hand-in-hand partnership, not just like we're buying from some supplier over there. So it's a really, really great relationship that we have, and that really helps us deliver great quality because everybody's eyes are on the quality, and that's super important in our industry. We've dialed in our logistics and uh, you know, making sure that we're delivering on time and having predictable lead time. So that's super important. 
Right now where we are is just scaling up sales. That's really the point where we are is we've got this ground level of, okay, this many sales reps, this many lead generation people, this many project managers, production managers, this many designers, this many logistics people. This is how many people can handle this much work. Now, how do we scale that up? Not how do we, but just scale that up. It's just about finding more great people. I'm actually hiring somebody as soon as we get off this call that I've been interviewing for the past couple of weeks, another sales rep. And so we're just going to add more sales reps, more lead generation, and really just try to share what we're offering with as many people as possible. I believe in what we sell so wholeheartedly. We have the best quality. We have the best prices. We have the best service. We treat people like gold. We're so appreciative of every customer. Anybody who says no to us, I'm baffled. I feel like, okay, there's something that I didn't explain properly because I truly believe that we are the best option. So trying to find more ways to just share that with everybody and help more people and grow the business and uh, create more great jobs for people, that's pretty much where we are. It's really just a matter of scaling up what we've already created. And if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, again, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story, but what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, Rain at hawkpackaging.com. So R-A-I-N-E at hawkpackaging.com. And any last words of wisdom or advice for anyone who's listening? Yeah, actually, I'm going to do this thing, if that's okay with you. I know we didn't talk about this, but if there is, I know you've got people from all different kind of uh, levels of their business that are listening, but if there's somebody who is where I was and who needs a little bit of help getting a cold email that works, that can help you start generating some leads, I'd like to take maybe five people who need help with that and you can email me and I will help you come up with a really powerful, really effective email to just kind of stimulate your business and help get you off the ground. Other than that, the only other point that I really want to drive home again is that you have to believe in yourself. You really have to try. And that point, every business hits that point where it feels like it's not working. And until you push that past that point, you'll never get there. You've got to push past that difficult part that it looks like a dead end. That's where you walk past the dead end, down the trail, into no man's land. And that's where the gold is. So you just got to keep going. Again, if someone wants to jump on that, be sure to contact you again. The best way is through email. Yeah, just email me. Say, hey, you know, I'm working on a cold email for my business and I'd like some help. I'm thinking about like literally putting together a book on that at some point. But for right now, if I can help a couple of people out in my spare time, I'm more than happy to. Yeah, maybe we'll just record that. Maybe we could share that too. It's like an email or email blast to anyone who's interested. You know, as far as like, even if you record it, then you don't have to do it over and over. Those are some of the things that I try to do from time to time as far as, I guess, making things more efficient. So even if you jump on calls with these five people, I think maybe there's some tips or maybe we can put together a quick course or something simple where people can learn from that. Because again, I think having a good cold email template, like that's what I used to use and have good open rates is like, People overlook those type of things and it's so easy if you understand the science behind it and how to do it properly. And obviously it sounds like you're pretty successful at it. So thanks for giving that offer to the audience. And again, thanks for coming on here and sharing your story. And we look forward to, I think, catching up, like I said, maybe a few years down the road and seeing as far as like where you got to with your business growth. And thank you for sharing again, the early years of your business. Cause again, we don't always get to hear that all the time. So thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And if you want more information on how to write better cold email scripts that actually get opened, Rain and I did a video call with one of our Patreon listeners on how to improve his cold emails. If you want access to that video, then go visit millionaire-interviews.com forward slash cold email. Again, that's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash cold email. Or you can also see that link by checking your episode notes below. Thanks again for listening, and if you'd be so kind, 
leave us an awesome review on Apple Podcasts, well, we'd really appreciate it.